Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jan Ellie, and if I could have any character from the artifact cycle printed with a card, a brand new card, I would pick Ashnod, the morally dubious artificer apprentice of one of the brothers. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and if I could have any character printed with a new card from the artifact cycle, it would probably be, um, let's see, uh, hmm. Probably Baron, because, like, oh my like gosh. we've been to Ravnica three times, and he still doesn't have a card. <sighs> stole my stole my thunder. Uh, Is that going to be your joke, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I, I have a backup. I have a backup. And I'm Brian Dawes, and if I could pick any character from the Artifact Cycle, it would be Gaia, a.k.a. Rebek. <laughs> No, <laughs> that that was a nice deep dive. No, that, that, that's my that's my final answer, Jay. <laughs> All right. So today's feature is going to be our prelude to our our more detailed weatherlight episodes. But before we get to that, we've got a couple pieces of Vorthos news. First, Throne of Eldraine was announced today. Uh, well, technically, it was announced at SDCC, San Diego Comic-Con, over the weekend. We, as we're recording, have only learned the name, so we will talk more about that in future episodes. In addition, Rise of the Gatewatch, the Abrams Arts art book, uh, will also be available the week this podcast is published. It's available digitally already. There were advanced copies sold at SDCC, and... Uh, Check it out. It's a neat little art book. It is more akin to traditional art books that are, it's got art, concept art, card art, things along those lines, as opposed to, say, the Viz art books, which were more like D&D world guides, because they were written by a guy who writes a lot of D&D world guides. So this one is not very text heavy at all. It should still be neat, though. Um, and it is worth noting that uh, we'll, we'll talk the Eldraine announcement next week because we have the name, we have the invitation from the press breakfast with the fairy with the pen nib as a spearhead, which is awesome. But Mark Rosewater's panel is two days from when we are recording, so we're not going to get to cover that information in this episode. We'll talk about it next week. There will be a lot to talk about. So the... Uh, feature of this week is our prelude to the weatherlight. So we're going to be talking about, trying to talk about the artifact cycle here. Those are five novels, The Thran, The Brothers War, Planeswalker, Time Streams, and Bloodlines. We will see whether or not we can get through all of it today. So I've written a couple summaries about these in the past. Uh, you can find them on MTG Salvation and we'll link them on Twitter and with the show notes. Uh, the first is Artifacts 1, Stones of Power and Heart, and Artifacts 2, Lines of Time and Blood, where I go into a bit more detail on each of these novels. This is not meant as detailed synopses of each of these novels. This is kind of the setup for the Weatherlight Saga. We've talked about a lot of these storylines in detail in other places, uh, including our episode 5, way, way back where we talked about Homerids, Joyra, Teferi, and Karn. The Homerids were the most important part of that episode. Obviously. So let's start with the Thran. The Thran were this ancient artificer empire uh, 
they had eight city-states around Dominaria, including their capital called Halcyon. Halcyon was a floating city in the sky, and then beneath it, in the mountain beneath it, they had the Caves of the Damned, called Coyolos. Now, the key players in this story were Yogmoth, who was a Thran physician, and there's nothing nefarious going on there at all, as I'm sure all our listeners know. Stupid, sexy Yogmoth. <laughs> Glacian, who was the foremost artificer of the Thran, he had made a lot of the inventions that the Thrans relied on those days. Glacian would actually be the card that I would want to see depicted on a new card, but Rebecca is also a good choice, but Glacian, the real answer. Rebecca was a edificer. She was the architect who essentially built Halcyon, and Yogmoth becomes enamored of her. There's also Dyfed, the planeswalker. She was the first uh, black woman planeswalker in Magic Canon, I believe. Um, she was a Thran herself, but she remained aloof from her people until they discovered the multiverse of on their own. She kind of had a uh, prime directive-like philosophy towards her people. And then there was Gix, the untouchable. He was one of the political dissidents who had been sentenced to live out his life as, as an exile in the Caves of the Damned. So in this novel, it starts out with Glacian experimenting, creating the largest power stone, trying to create the largest power stone he ever has. And Gix, through secret tunnels underneath Halcyon, sneaks in and stabs Glacian with the shard of one of these failed power stones. No one can figure out how to treat Glacian. He gets this kind of wasting disease. And an exiled Yogmoth gets recalled by the Halcyon government in order to treat him. Yogmoth was exiled because he belonged to a group called the Eugenicists, who were people who essentially believed in modern medicine. Uh, <laughs> for being technologically advanced, the Thran were not particularly medically advanced. Yogmoth is treating Glacian, but does not seem to be making any progress. Meanwhile, he discovers that the exiles in the Caves of the Damned are uh, experiencing a disease called Thysis. Is that how he decided it was actually pronounced? Thysis, yes. Thysis. So they have this wasting disease called Thysis, and he ends up making a deal with the exiles because they end up revolting and coming up onto the streets of Halcyon. And... Yogmoth makes a bargain in exchange for the cure for them to return to the caves. And this gives him power with both groups because he is now in charge of the cure for the exiles, but also he's the hero that put down the exile revolt. Uh, he also starts experimenting on Glacian with the Power Stone shards. The real reason Glacian isn't getting any better is because he's experimenting with how these power stone shards wedged within him seem to be growing for some reason that he can't figure out. Glacian starts to kind of lose his mind. He doesn't trust Yogmoth at all while everyone else is completely enamored of him. And he ends up developing uh, a bunch of different theories, one of which attracts the attention of Dyfed, uh, which was that basically the metaphysics of power stones were a lot like the metaphysics of planes and that there might be physical space inside the Power Stones when charged. Yogmoth convinces Dyfed that the Thran could use a place for 
all the people affected by Tysus to be able to recover. So Dyfed goes and searches the multiverse and finds this plane called Phyrexia. Phyrexia at the time had nine nested spheres. It was a, a kind of a paradise, an artificial paradise. So everything was mechanical, but it was all like a real life cycle going on there. It was all faux life. The problem with Phyrexia, though, is somebody left a big dead draconic planeswalker right in the middle of it. Nobody cleaned that up. Whose job was that? <laughs> Yogmoth also starts becoming obsessed with planeswalkers and their abilities and starts to try and find the planeswalking organ. So anyway, while all this is happening and he's convincing the Thran of Halcyon that they have this manifest destiny... The people Yogmoth hurt while he was out and about on exile uh, unite against him. It becomes clear that Yogmoth's MO is he would show up to a region, unleash some devastating plague, and then reap rewards for being the one who cures the plague. And if there's no rewards to be had, he basically commits genocide and lets the plague wipe out as many people as possible. There's a whole hostage exchange situation where these Thran hostages are sent to Mercadia by Dyfed to keep Yogmoth from killing them. Yogmoth in this war begins deploying these uh, WMDs he calls mana chargers, which are like the essentially they crack open power stones and I think they're called power stone chargers. I don't remember exactly what it is. But they essentially crack open power stones, and they're nuclear bombs, more or less. They're magic nukes. Yeah, that's all you really need to know about it. And at the same time, while on Phyrexia, he had brought the sick people with Tysus in with these little pods that he didn't tell anybody were also modifying their genetics. So he creates these kind of proto-Phyrexians that we've only seen in like one or two images. The Thran Civil War culminates in the Battle of Megadon Defile. Uh, that's depicted in the Fall of the Thran saga from Dominaria. It's where this uh, this device called the Null Sphere... Null Sphere, that's my boy! <laughs> ...which was used to siphon off the power of those Power Stone Chargers, gets uh, the Thran aboard it all sacrifice their lives uh, to keep Yogmoth from... Uh, from using it again and again on all the, the assembled forces of the Thran Alliance outside of Halcyon. So they launch themselves into space, essentially, where the Null Sphere becomes known as the Null Moon, and the people of the plane uh, don't remember that it was a, actually like a space station. Um, Why, well, I, I guess Farallon remembered. So Yogmoth, without the Null Sphere to siphon off the power detonates this nuke right outside his city's front door and everybody realizing they're all going to die flees through this planar portal that Dyfed had created to Phyrexia deep within the caves of Koilos or the caves of the damned uh, they all flee through the portal and as they're going Rebecca has realized how duplicitous Yogmoth is and she uses the power stones uh, that Yogmoth had been experimenting on with Glacian to seal the gateway to Phyrexia. So as long as these power stones remain in this power cradle, essentially, uh, the gateway cannot be opened again from the other side. One thing to note about the this power stone is that it is assumed, or I think it's, I 
pretty sure that it's pretty much said in the book that Power Stones are basically Glacian's Planeswalker Spark at this point, and that's this is the same Power Stone that makes up the uh, meek and no, it's weak and might stone. Yeah, the the might stone and weak stone. Yeah, they're 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 two shards. Rebecca smashes them together to close the gate. Halcyon falls into ruin. The Thran are forgotten. Rebecca becomes Gaia. That's not canon. <laughs> probably not true. It, the book so, doesn't say it. It didn't happen, so. The Thran Empire becomes just another relic in Dominaria's history. About 5,000 years later, uh, on Teresier, these young brothers named Urza and Mishra, who are both born at the one was born at the beginning of the year, that's Urza, and one was born at the end of the year, that's Mishra, they're orphaned due to some uh Cinderella y shenanigans. <laughs> their father was a lord who remarried after their mother died, and when he died, uh his their stepmother kicked them out, essentially. And they went to stay with a woman named Takesia in the desert. They learned to be archaeologists alongside her and discover this ancient Thran relic called a Thopter that they then fix up and they use it to fly over the desert sands further than people on foot have ever been able to go. And they discover the caves of Koilos. Go deep inside. They find this giant power stone and power stones are incredibly valuable at this point in time because they are so rare, especially working ones and when they go to pull it the both brothers reach for it at the same time neither will relinquish it and so the power stones split in half with this big flash of light essentially and urza gets the what he dubs the might stone because it has the ability to magically strengthen things and mishra gets what's called the weak stone which has the power to magically weaken things now, Misha already has a bit of an inferiority complex, so having his side of the stone dubbed the weak stone doesn't help things at all. Well, it's it's fitting because Urza already has a superiority complex. So, like, <laughs> it's, they're perfect it's brothers. super true. Um, and it is also a good thing that the weak stone and the might stone being together like that in the Caves of Koilos weren't doing anything important, right? Like, like, like... Like sealing the gateway to Phyrexia. Yep. What the brothers don't realize is that they have now reopened the gateway to Phyrexia. And the Phyrexian Oop. demon slash praetor Gix is able to come through to Dominaria. So I won't go into the details here, but the two brothers eventually fall apart after Mishra tries to steal Urza's stone and kills their mentor Takesia in the process. Both of them end up going to different kingdoms and eventually find themselves working their way to the leadership positions caught in escalating conflict. They both take on apprentices. Urza takes on Thanos, who is just the, the probably one of the few good guys that actually exists in this novel, because Urza is not a good guy. Uh, he's just less, less bad than Mishra. Is he, though? <laughs> Misha takes on Ashnod, who is a very morally dubious woman, um, who in had invented a staff that its only purpose was to make people feel pain. Nice, I like her. <laughs> Urza ends up married to Caleb and Krug, who is the uh, 
eventually becomes the queen of the eastern coast of that whole region. So these two brothers, their nations end up getting caught in this escalating conflict. Uh, Mishra ends up using these Phyrexian mechanical devices called dragon engines that he makes like very bootleg copies of uh, in order to supplement his forces, while Urza uses thopters and these constructs, um, like you see in his card. Uh, as this is all going on, they're kind of strip mining the whole continent. And so this third group that is led uh, by another artificer named Felden and his love, Loran, who is someone that knew Urza and Mishra when they were young, uh, they end up discovering something called the Golgothian Silex, which has some sort of magical power. It seems ominous based on what they can translate from it. It's probably just a normal serving dish. Yeah, you should just use it for like cereal in the morning or something. So the Brotherhood of Gix, if you remember that uh, Frexian had escaped into the plane, he had found this monastery and essentially cyborgized. Uh, he didn't complete or Phyrexianize really these monks, uh, but he did artificially modify them. And they modify Mishra until there's basically nothing human left of him except like a layer of skin over like a Terminator type robot. Um, the Golgothian Silex ends up making its way into Mishra's hands, who doesn't really do much with it yet because he doesn't understand its value. Once the whole island, once the whole continent has been mostly strip mined, the battle turns to Argoth. Uh, Urza's son, a man named Harbin, discovers this giant, rich, verdant coastal island um, just off the coast of Tereciere, and they begin stripping it for resources. The island natives fight back. That's where you see, like, Titania and, and those cards. Our first marrow sorcerer. Ashnod realizes how dangerous the Golgothian Silex is and decides she and Thanos have kind of a, a weird relationship but they sort of trust each other, and she knows that after some time away, she realizes how much the Brotherhood of Gix has influence over Misha, and so she gives the Silex over to Thanos, who gives it to Urza. Uh, during the final battle on Argoth, uh, Urza does this attack on Mishra that reveals that like Terminator endoskeleton beneath his skin, and he realizes that there's nothing left of his brother. Gix reveals himself, and takes control of all the artifacts on the battlefield because they are all made with uh, Thran technology. And so Urza, in like this panicked moment, realizing that if he lets this Gix, who has destroyed his brother, win, um, nothing will be left of Dominaria. And so he turns to the Golgothian Silex and uses magic for the first time to set it off and it creates this huge blast and in the process urza fuses with uh his brother's weak stone and his might stone and he ascends as a planeswalker stolen spark aka glacian gix is able to teleport away and escape back through the portal uh before anything truly bad happens to him though he loses a hand in the process though and thus ends the Brothers' War, the Antiquities' War, the Antiquity Wars, however you want to call the event. They're done. <laughs> and the multiverse was fine and peaceful forever, right? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Urza descends the plane into an ice age, which also creates something called the Shard of Twelve Worlds. The Shard of Twelve Worlds is like this planar barrier that uh, you can only access these 12 planes inside it and you can't get out of it. So there's a lot of plots going on in the Ice Age about that. But one thing it means is that the Phyrexians can't get in through their planar portal as so long as it's up. So it's kind of this reprieve. Urza is outside of the shard before it starts, so he can't get back home, and he ends up traveling the multiverse. So uh, he stumbles across this Phyrexian Newt, which is a basically the base genetic stock of a Phyrexian. They grow them in tubes. Uh, they are human-ish in appearance. Like, they look humanoid. They look kind of like a... a um, what's the word I'm looking for? David Bowie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they look like adolescent David Bowies, more or less. That's a such a perfect example. Uh, and Urza stumbles across one of them, uh, a being named Zancha, who is a was meant to be a sleeper agent for Gix to infiltrate Dominaria, but she showed too much individuality, so she was put on these very dangerous, hazardous technology reclamation assignments. Urza discovers her with Phyrexians and thinks she's been kidnapped and, and rescues her, essentially. They travel the multiverse for some time. He creates this device for her that gives her like the ability to create this bubble around her to be able to survive the blind eternities on their trips together eventually urza decides he wants to crush phyrexia for everything they've done to him and so he builds this massive like i think it's like six-legged uh dragon engine to uh, assault the plane with and he leaves zancha behind so that he can go and basically get his revenge he's not quite all within his, his senses at this point Zancha, for her part, is worried because her heart stone, which I should note is a power stone that is inserted in them when they are in the tubes, and it basically absorbs their soul, and then the Phyrexian priests hold on to it so that if a Phyrexian gets out of line or makes mistakes, they can like scratch things into these heart stones and use it to punish them from a distance Zancha wants to get her heartstone back, so uh, she sneaks into Phyrexia using uh, one of these smaller Phyrexian portals that they have as little portable devices. So while Urza is just rampaging with this giant metal dragon through Phyrexia, she uses the distraction in order to go steal back her um, steal back her heartstone. That's what you see in the card, like ill-gotten gains. Well, so so you see it really good in Mark Winter's art for Zantra Sleeper Agent from Commander last year. She is shown clutching her heartstone to her chest with the Frexine Tower in the background. She has just stolen it, is making her escape. Urza's brilliant plan to attack Frexia, the home of Dragon Engines, with just a really big Dragon Engine, does a lot of damage, but it's not going to win. Is this Ramos? It is not Ramos. Ramos is actually supposedly a dragon engine that just after Urza's spark ignited, he reprogrammed to take everyone on Argoth uh, to, right. uh, to to Mercadia as well. That's a, I'm really glad you asked that, though, because that'll be important for our Weatherlight episodes. Shh. It's a surprise tool that will be important later. 
so Zancha convinces Urza to flee. They escape from plane to plane uh, with Frexia on their heels the whole time using those portable uh, planar portals uh, until they finally escape to Sarah's realm where Zancha is kind of an outcast because she's this black mana being on this pure white plane. Urza and Sarah hit it off, uh, but eventually they decide to leave. They kind of led Phyrexia to Sarah's front door, though, and a bunch of other stuff goes on there. In our Sarah episode, we talk about that a bit more. So if you want to check that out, that is that is episode four, which we talk about the history of Sarah. So if you want to learn more about that, check out that episode. So when they eventually return to Dominaria, and this is after visiting a couple other planes like Equilor, which is supposedly the oldest known plane in the multiverse, uh, they return and Urza just kind of lives in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, like playing with these little figures and trying to figure out how to go back in time and figure out how it all went wrong. And he's just like talking to Mishra like he's still there. So Zancha hatches a plan. She discovers a young man named Ratape who looks, or Rat, who is, which is a nickname we see again in, in Modern Magic, uh, Rat looks a lot like Mishra did. Um, and so Zancha brings Rat back and convinces Urza that Rat is Mishra in order to get Urza, like, back to reality here. Uh, it, end, it ends up working, and they devise this plan to create these devices called spiders that, at the height of the moon, will activate and send out this frequency that'll kill every Phyrexian sleeper agent that's infiltrated Dominaria at this point. It works, but not everything, not all the sleeper agents are killed. Uh, Zancha, of course, is kept safe by Urza. Uh, and Zancha also discovers that Gix is there in the same general region they are, a place called Efwin Pinkar, which is actually a pretty small nation on Teresier. They follow Gix back to his lair. Urza and Gix ha have a duel in this battle. It's like this massive epic battle between them. Urza isn't a particularly strong magic user, and Gix is a very, very strong being. I mean, he, he's he's a completed Frexian Praetor demon. Yeah. <laughs> like, dude is, dude is like number two below Yawgmoth. Dude's the real deal. So Urza and Gix are dueling, but it becomes pretty clear that Urza's going to lose. So Zancha and Ratape end up distracting Gix long enough for Urza to overcome him, but in the distraction, they're killed. In the aftermath, Urza has kind of regained his mind. Uh, in fact, Joda comes to speak to him around this time at the end of the Ice Age novels, uh, and... Urza has the idea to start a magical academy. He wants to find a concerted way to fight back against Phyrexia. Because he just got his ass kicked. So that moved, that was the novel Planeswalker. Let's move on to time streams. Time streams we have talked about in detail in episode 5. Yeah, move on to time streams where, like, so Urza has this plan now to start a magic academy to fight Phyrexia. And I'm sure everything goes perfectly smoothly all according to plan right oh yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely definitely uh, <laughs> when do any so, of Urza's plans actually work the way he anticipated they would work zero of them exactly zero of them <laughs> so 
Urza partners with this wizard named Baron, who is like three or four hundred years old at this point. And they found the Talarian Academy out on this island in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's basically, as we've called it in the past, Hogwarts from hell. They only recruit children because the sleeper agents are not able to reproduce children accurately. And so the sleeper agents all look like adults. They end up uh, recruiting two students out uh, of few i don't remember exactly how long into the uh into the the academy's life it was but they recruit joyra and teferi who i'm not going to talk about in a lot of detail except for that joyra breaks one of the cardinal rules of the talarian academy is that all castaways people who are washed ashore or show up and don't belong are to be reported so that they can be executed because they're probably phyrexians or Phyrexian sleeper agents. Joyra ends up finding this castaway named Carrick, and she's like a teenager, and she's very lonely at this academy because it's a very, very much a boys' club. And so here's this handsome man who pays attention to her. So she ends up protecting him and not revealing who he is. Uh, Urza, at the same time, is experimenting with time travel. He builds a silver golem to be his probe through time because he finds silver is the most resistant to his time machine's stresses. Using Zancha's Heartstone as the cognitive effective matrix, and that's basically the personality. So most of his artifacts don't aren't really thinking beings. They follow orders and commands. But Karn becomes self-aware and is assigned to Joyra, and they quickly become friends. Teferi's kind of a jerk face to him. He calls him Artie Shovelhead. Yeah, so so Urza does what any good friend does, and takes his dead pal's heart and uses it to create an artificial person that he then denies personhood to. Classy. Yeah, he there's a, there's a big theme of Urza not thinking of Karn as a person, despite making him a self-aware person. And Baron constantly berates Urza about this, but, you know, Urza doesn't listen, so. And Baron doesn't do, to be honest, Baron doesn't do a whole lot to mitigate it either. Well, he's busy being a fascist and taking away all of Teferi's fun devices that make part noise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking, because he does that. Oh, he, he the, definitely does that. Con- the way the he... card confiscate. Or, or something like that. <laughs> yes, Confiscate uh, shows that. So, <laughs> being a fascist. <laughs> we, so, we also learn in Time Spiral that Teferi uh, tied Beebles to the bottom of boots so he could jump really far. <laughs> so, fart device, Beeble boots. Teferi's got a lot of, a lot of positives for an asshole smart kid. <laughs> Bully, jerk. So, uh, Carrick discovers Urza's, uh, a lot of Urza's plans, and as a spy, he's found what he's looking for, and he calls in his bosses, who open up a portal, because they didn't know the exact coordinates. They're able to open up a portal, and a bunch of Phyrexian negators come through, and basically slaughter a whole bunch of people, including Joyra. Karn, upon finding Joyra dead goes back to the time machine, activates it himself, and gets ahead of Carrick to be able to attempt to stop the Phyrexian invasion of the island. Things go differently. Joyra isn't killed, but Karn, by changing time and using the time machine in a way it wasn't ready for yet, 
creates this massive time explosion. You see it on the card Karn's Temporal Sundering, and it creates these time rifts all over the planes. So Carrick and the Phyrexian Negators get caught in this fast time bubble. Uh, Joyra is outside the bubbles. Uh, Teferi is caught in a slow time bubble where he's just like, over the course of like a decade, this uh, like small fire is spreading over him. Um, so the world just passes him by very quickly. Uh, Urza, Baron, and Karn escape with a bunch of students, but not everybody. When they return, they don't expect to find anybody alive, but find Joyra having survived and discovered, you know, some of the secrets of this island, namely that if you drink water from the slow time bubbles, your aging will slow down. And that's how Joyra is still alive. And she also invents a means to rescue Teferi by bridging the gaps between these time bubbles by using water in mist form from the opposite kind of time bubble. So you use a fast time water steam to create a sort of bridge into a slow time bubble where a human being could survive it. Because otherwise you put your finger through and uh, your finger ages, like withers away for to nothing. And your heart can't take that kind of strain. Uh, so they rescue Teferi. But meanwhile, in their fast time bubble, Carrick has become Kirk. Uh, and he has created his own little mini Phyrexia with his own mini Phyrexian arena. Uh, and these slow time Phyrexians that are just kind of cannibalizing and reiterating on one another all the time. Trying to figure out their own way out to invade the Talarian Academy. And because time moves so fast for them... They have plenty of time to see the Talarian's attacks coming and are able to create counters like incredibly quickly from an outside perspective. In order to continue the fight, Urza discovers from a Joyra trinket the mana rig and the uh, Thran metal that's produced there. So there's a whole side aside here, which you can learn more about in our other podcast. But basically the gist is they learn to make Thran metal and they also discover at the mana rig they can make new power stones, which really helps their war effort, especially against the fast time, uh, the fast time Phyrexians. I'm sorry, slow time Phyrexians. No, it's fast time Phyrexians. The timey wimey Phyrexians. The timey wimey Phyrexians. It's it's fast for them. It's a children's book. So Urza comes up with this idea of a battleship that could grow with the Thran metal. But what he he needs an organic component that he decides to get from the uh, island forest of Yavamaya. Except Yavamaya has ancestral memories of him because of Argoth and what he did there. So Yavamaya's protector, Multani, captures him and makes him relive the destruction of Argoth from nature's point of view over and over again for like five years. So wait, Renin 6 isn't Urza stuck in a tree? <laughs> yeah urza and six and multani is our second maro sorcerer urza eventually convinces multani to let him go because what urza was trying to stop was phyrexia which is far far worse than urza could ever be and he's right about that so multani decides to aid him they return to uh talaria just as the talarians are getting overrun by these fast-time Phyrexians that are just evolving at an exponential rate. So, uh, Multani, with the power of nature and friendship, 
uh, ends up de- uh, defeating all these Phyrexians on Talaria for them. And he gives Urza the Weather Seed. And so they create this partnership to create this battleship to help fight Phyrexia called the Weatherlight. Uh, and so the Weatherlight is born from this magical wood of Mav- Yavamaya and Thran metal. So it's this fusion of life and artifice, but in like a different way than the Phyrexian perversion of it. The first mission for the Weatherlight is on Sarah's realm because uh, Urza learns that in his time away from Sarah's realm, the Phyrexians have infiltrated it and it has gone to hell. Sarah has abandoned it. Um, their leader, what's her name? I don't remember. Off the Radiant. Top of my head. Their leader, Radiant, has become, created this kind of totalitarian fascist state. It's not kind of. She just creates a fascist state. And uh, basically, Radiant's number one advisor is a Phyrexian sleeper agent. Oops. They transport the Weatherlight with Karn. Joyra is captaining it uh, to Sarah. Uh, Urza and Baron are riding dragons, one of whom is Daragaz and Daragaz's mom. Both of whom, uh, well, one of whom will be relevant later. Daragaz's mom dies in this battle. And they try to evacuate as many people from Sarah's realm as they can. Because Urza is going to collapse the realm into this massive power stone he made in the mana rig to be able to fuel the Weatherlight's engines to travel the planes without his aid. Uh, and so that's where the card Planar Collapse comes from. Urza collapsed all of Sarah's realm into the Weatherlight power stone once they've evacuated everyone they could, uh, leaving behind like the Phyrexian sleeper agents and, and whoever else. Uh, so that's kind of the end of, of where Time Streams le- le- uh, leaves off. They've created this magical weatherlight skyship. Karn and Joyra are at the head of it. Teferi has kind of disappeared from the fight now. He's returned to his home on Jamura. He goes off and has a bunch of really weird adventures on Jamura. <laughs> he becomes the King Arthur of uh, Zalfir, essentially, his homeland. Yeah, and then he mostly just sits around and does nothing while all these people have wars. And then remembers he can stop them. So then there's this long-running Cold War in Bloodlines. Oh, you, so so just like making the Weatherlight didn't mean just flying to Frexia and winning? There was like more? There was more problematic planning in Urza's schemes? Oh, yes. So... There's this Cold War arms race between Phyrexia, who has created the artificial plane of Wrath. Uh, we don't know what purpose for yet. It's built of something called Flowstone, uh, which can be shaped to someone's will. And from Wrath, they're launching these attacks through these small overlays on Dominaria, where like the two planes weirdly have this space where they coincide. Yeah, the metaphysics of Flowstone are weird. Just accept them. Flowstone can, like, <laughs> slip through reality and overlay onto Dominaria. Oh, the metaphysics of that blow my mind. So, one character is Rain, who is the becomes the Academy Chancellor. She and Baron, through the course of the novel, fall in love. Uh, they end up having a baby together named Hannah, uh, who will become important in our next podcast. There's also Gotha. Gotha is kind of an arrogant SOB... Uh, not very ethically inclined. He's, he's kind of a chip off Urza's block. 
He steals this Bloodlines research that Urza is working on. Urza is working on creating these super soldiers called Metathran through this Bloodlines project, which has two different facets. Gotha escapes with some of this genetic research uh, and goes to Keld, the only place that they can't come get him because the Keldons are too powerful. It's this army of marauding warriors. And Gotha, over the years, improves the Keldons over and over until they become like these Hulk-like entities. Improves in quotation marks. The, <laughs> yes. The, the, the Gathan warriors are the literally uncontrollable hulks, but like all the time. They are bloodthirsty. They are extraordinarily aggressive and violent to a gratuitous level. Even more so than regular Keldons. So Gotha builds up the Keldons like this until the Phyrexians take notice that they're, he's essentially using Phyrexian science on these Keldons. And when he realizes that he and his Keldon allies end up killing themselves so that the Phyrexians can't get his secrets. The other plotline here is that there's the second project that Urza's working on, which other than the Metathran are the Bloodline Heroes. Urza starts establishing these slight tweaks to generations of people over time to create the perfect heroes to lead Dominaria in their fight against Phyrexia. He does a heckin' eugenics. It's, it's, it's iffy. It's not iffy, it is very ethically bad. <laughs> it is certainly awful. Um, and he frequently does it without the consent of the people that he's doing it to. Yeah, it's real, real, real bad. So one of the most promising bloodlines is on Benalia, uh, the Capuchin bloodline. In order to protect it, Karn, uh, Urza leaves Karn with them. And this ends up being in the same general area that a lot of the Saren refugees end up resettling. I believe they were originally brought to Zelfir, and then they kind of spread out from there. This Capuchin bloodline starts to get wiped out by the Phyrexians, who have also noticed these people and are able to hone in on them. Until all that's left of Urza's bloodlines, uh, or this particular branch of Urza's bloodlines, is a baby named Gerard. And in the midst of the slaughter, Karn escapes with baby Gerard to protect him and brings him to Jamura, which we will get into more next time. Meanwhile, Phyrexia has slaughtered most of Urza's bloodlines in order to defeat his plans. And so that leaves people like a, a young woman named Sisse in control of this magical skyship called the Weatherlight that she's inherited from her parents, but she has no idea where it came from. All she knows is that it's a piece of some collection of treasures called the Legacy. Because if you thought this was the end of Urza's BS schemes, you were wrong. <laughs> All right. That about does it for this. Brian, do you want to rave about a certain character we're going to talk about next week? next week all right <laughs> yeah i'm so this is a lot of backstory i know but a lot of it was important to what's to come you need to know urza and phyrexia have a cold war going on uh urza has these power stone eyes from the might stone and meek uh might stone and weak stone 
Karn has Zancha's Heartstone inside of him. Uh, Urza creates these bloodlines where Gerard is like this lost hero and uh, like all these artifacts that he had given out to the bloodlines have been scattered all around. That's kind of where we're going to pick up. And he's built the skyship called the Weatherlight. And he has built the Weatherlight. It's also a little important to note that he's kind of uh, estranged from Joyra and Teferi here, both of whom are kind of gotten wise to his BS. Uh, that'll be important later, but but not right away. Yeah, Jorah goes back to Shiv, and we don't really hear from her for a while after this. And Teferi's off in Jamura doing his own things, and he'll come back in later. We'll talk about him in two weeks. Yeah, so that next next week is the Weatherlight Saga proper. Uh, so so we'll we'll be covering events from uh, I believe uh, Tempest through. Are we covering up through Nemesis? Yeah. Next time is the immediate prelude to the Phyrexian invasion and then in two weeks is the Phyrexian invasion so let's move on to final thoughts personally if you want to check this stuff out time streams is a really excellent novel to read for fans of magic today because it's going to be the one that's most relevant to you today it stars Karn, Joyra, and Teferi you get a lot of early characterization for them explanation of who they are um, you get some bits about the Weatherlight, Sarah's Realm, and the power, Weatherlight's Power Stone, things that matter in Return to Dominaria. So if you really want to learn more about this or want to read one of these novels, Time Streams is my highest recommendation. Lorelai? My final thought is that I watched the Cats movie trailer and I hate it and I want to claw my eyes out. Cats was bizarre and just nestled at the bottom of the uncanny valley to begin with and then they decided to do the green lantern thing like like the ryan reynolds green lantern and just like cgi some fur but like the tails don't connect in the right places on the spines and it's like weird and it doesn't move with the facial recognition tech underneath it it's so bizarre they it's so weird why can't Hollywood just let horny furries make the art for them? Then it would not look bizarre and weird. It will look natural and aesthetically pleasing. It's like, don't. Mm. <laughs> All right, Brian. My final thought is that 3D printing is really cool, but it's really frustrating when you're first getting started. <laughs> there's a lot of tinkering and messing around with levels and making sure things are balanced and whatnot so it's um it's a learning process but um bought my first 3d printer and it's um taking me for a ride so i'm looking to see how this goes <laughs> what kind of projects are you looking to use it for like are you gonna making minis for D? yeah pretty much mostly that kind of stuff cool nice that's pretty sweet so if you are also terrified by cats and want to find other people who are terrified by cats so you can all be terrified together and huddle together for the sake of your sanity you can head over to patreon.com slash the everyone who supports our show gets access to our discord community where all these cats movie creeped out folks hang out and talk about magic instead because we don't want to live our lives in fear so uh also like eldraine like throne of eldraine new set new world, all kinds of new Vorthos things to talk about. 
If you are looking for a community to join and and get excited, uh, head over to Patreon now. We also have for higher tiers, we do a monthly episode called Pull from the Deep, which is a uh, short episode where we just talk about kind of a random topic that doesn't really have anything to do with anything relevant in magic right now, but it's interesting and still intersects with magic and in a cool way. And there are more personal topics, so they're uh, quirkier and more narrow, and uh, they're a bunch of fun. They're a bunch of fun to make. They're a bunch of fun to listen to. You get to know uh, a lot more about the things that us hosts know about that doesn't get to be talked about on the show because we have a little less than an hour to talk about magic and then uh, our highest tier we do live listens every week for our episodes we record around 7 p.m eastern time on thursdays so if you're part of that tier you get to listen to the podcast as it's being recorded which means a you get it a couple days early and b you can chat with us before and after the show and uh chat in a special channel as uh, with the other live listeners as the podcast is being recorded, which we think is pretty cool, and hopefully some of you think is pretty cool too. So as an aside, usually I close out the podcast right now, we have done a limited print run of Vorthos Cast Playmats. We've made it available first to our uh, Discord, our Patreon supporters in our Discord it's now going to be, the are very, very limited quantities are going to be available to the general public by the time this podcast is posted. So if that's something you're interested in, send me a message. They are first come, first serve, very, very limited quantities. But if they are popular enough, we will do second and third print runs as needed. Yeah, we can basically make them whenever. So as they sell out, we'll order more so. They look really neat. You can see pictures of them on our Twitter page. And and that's that's awesome. They're so great. The Arts by Dios boss, they are... I'm still amazed at how good they came out. We will be showing them off at uh, GP Atlanta if you're going to be there. I'm definitely going to be using it the whole weekend. Uh, and some of my co-hosts will be too. That's going to be really hard because there's no event called GP Atlanta. It's Magic Fest Atlanta. No, there is a GP in the Magic Fest. Thank you very much. So there is a GP Yes, but Atlanta. we are not going to be playing in the GP. You don't know okay. that. Fair enough. You, you don't know that. I have a legacy deck. That's right. It is legacy. <laughs> yeah, but you have a legacy deck, but do you have Ren and Sixes? That's the question. No, I'll be playing elves. <laughs> Duh. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast. <laughs>